0: I'm gonna say something that I considered a dirty word for a really long time, but networking. (laughs) Networking is something that absolutely used to terrify me, especially as a new lawyer, because I didn't wanna look silly. And I think that's something that holds a lot of people back, particularly as juniors. But now I approach networking very differently. I look at it as I wanna learn something from everyone I meet. It's more about asking questions than wondering what people think about what I'm saying.
1: Welcome to the council podcast, a podcast about life as an in-house lawyer. I'm your host, Mel Scott, senior legal counsel at a global technology company based in Brisbane, Australia. I am passionate about all things in-house and am so excited to share insights, interview key people in our profession and demystify in-house practice. My guest today is Kate Sherburn, sole legal counsel at Who Gives a Crap, a profit for purpose company based in Melbourne, Australia. Kate's title at Who Gives a Crap is Legal Beagle, which I actually think is a lot of fun and gives an insight into the organisation's culture. Kate has found a way to practice law that she is truly passionate about and shares some pearls of wisdom about creating your own opportunities that I found really inspiring. I've been hearing from a lot of you on LinkedIn lately, and I truly appreciate your messages of support and encouragement for the podcast. If you have any suggestions for the show or would just like to connect, please do reach out. I love hearing from this community, and I've popped a link to my LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Enjoy this episode with Kate Sherburne, and please feel free to share it with anyone in your network who may also enjoy it. Thank you for joining me today, Kate. It is so lovely to be speaking to you in person. Thanks, Mel. And congratulations for being named as a finalist of the Association of Corporate Counsel new to in-house award as well. What an honor that is. Thank
0: you. Yes, it was a lovely email to get a very nice prize, particularly in this
1: year. And we'll definitely touch on that because I have no doubt that your company in particular has been rocked by what's happened and what happened earlier in the year. Yep. If you had a limitless credit card, but could only spend it at one shop, what shop would that be and why? So pre-lockdown,
0: I would have said a running shop or a craft shop because they are my two big hobbies. However, now having spent seven months in lockdown, I would probably say the Lego shop. I've spent countless hours doing Lego with my kids. It's pretty much been my son's kinder year. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Lego is not cheap. So it's not. That credit card uh, would go a long way, I'm sure.
0: Yes. We've we've become very creative with building new things and adding sets
1: together. <laughs> and I'm glad you're you're coming through it, Victoria seems to be coming to the end uh, somewhat. It's hard to say, but there seems to be light at the end of the tunnel. And hopefully by the time this episode is dropping, you will be free to be crafting and running and doing all of the things that you may have done pre-lockdown. So fingers crossed on that one. So I'd love to ask, what was your first legal job?
0: So my first legal job was a paralegal at Cadbury Schweppes. So I had done a double degree of law and psychology which was longer than the average double degree and by the time I think I was about five years in I needed a break I was Mm. I was a little bit studied out and I saw this opportunity for a a 13-month contract at Cadbury they had a paralegal program back then and it was 13 months you had one month of handover from the previous four paralegals then you had 11 months where you there were the team of four paralegals in the legal team and then last month was handing over to the next group and I absolutely loved it. (laughs) So that that was my first experience. It was a an amazing group of lawyers to learn from. The paralegals themselves, we there was only four of us. So we became quite close knit and and then I went back to uni for my final year and it absolutely whizzed by. It was a great opportunity and probably the best decision I ever made really career wise.
1: Awesome. And no doubt it gave you a taste of what in-house life could be like as well.
0: Definitely. I knew from that point that I wanted to go in-house eventually. I didn't know exactly when, but that had always been my ultimate aim. Even though I started in private practice, from that early stage, I knew that eventually I'd end up in-house.
1: So you've gone back for the year, finished up the studies, and then I assume moved into private practice after graduation?
0: Yes, so I, I finished and went overseas for three and a half months, which was a fabulous experience. It was the joy of not starting my grad year until March. And then I started my grad year at a global firm. And so I did the, the usual thing where we had four, six month rotations. However, what wasn't usual in my situation was in my third rotation. I loved it. I really loved the work, I loved the partners and their associate in that team left. And so I got offered a permanent position, even though I was still meant to be doing another rotation. So I ended up doing two rotations in the same group and then I settled there permanently after the Mm. um, graduate
1: rotations finished. They kind of snared you by the sounds of it, didn't want to let you go.
0: Yeah, and I was quite happy with that because I did really like the team and even I was trying to work out what my fourth rotation would be, sort of keeping in mind that I'd end up coming back to that group and in the end we decided it probably wasn't worth it and I should just stick there and get that extra six months of experience in the team.
1: What practice area was that?
0: It was corporate advisory, but Uh it was a little bit of a specific one. So there were two partners in the team and one specialised in technology and one specialised in life sciences and biopharmaceuticals. I was in the life sciences side, and it was just a very interesting area. It was general commercial work, but with a lot of pharmaceutical companies. It was quite diverse, involved a lot of research to try and find answers to questions that we'd not seen before, Mm. which is still something I enjoy doing.
1: And what are your strongest memories of life at that time as an early career lawyer?
0: I think. The relationships you make, particularly with your grad group. I'm still friends with people from my grad year. We've all gone into very diverse part, you know, careers yes. and different paths, but we still, I mean, we still have steak nights, we call them. We, n- none of us are at the firm <laughs> anymore. And we've sort of, over the years, we've, uh, there, there are a lot of people that have been added to those nights. This year they have been virtual steak nights. <laughs> but yeah, we sort of still catch up a couple of times a year, and it's really great to have to have those networks and to form those bonds with people that are going through the same thing that you are.
1: Yeah, there's like no one quite understands what you're going through as a grad except for other grads, I think. <laughs> yeah, and there's that real in the trenches camaraderie that's developed as well.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly it. we we were the. First year, I think, that didn't do articles as well. So we ah. we went through College of Law as well, which so it was the first one sort of navigating that process as well, which sort of meant we couldn't even talk to previous grad mm. groups about it because they hadn't done it.
1: And it's really interesting to see how everybody's paths do diverge. As you said, no one's at that firm anymore, but I'm sure that even within that group, so many may not even even be in private practice or even the law altogether. Like it's just a true mixed bag. But then if your experience was anything like mine, back in those first years, it was all like we were all gunning to be partner, you know, and we all wanted the exact same thing. But then it yep. shifts over time.
0: I was a post GFC grad. <laughs> so we, we only had six in my grad group.
1: We did have two
0: extra join sort of in the sort of 12 months afterwards, I think. But it was a very different experience for us as well, because I think the, the grad groups leading up to that, they kind of all expected a job at the end of it, whereas we were just hoping we had a job at the end of it. Mm. So I think that also ch- probably changed the way we looked at things. But yes, I think a, a lot of people will you know big firms, so this is where I'll stay, but most of us aren't. There are a couple of people still in private practice, a couple have gone overseas, a few in-house and one nurse.
1: There you go. (laughs) (laughs) I I certainly have a a similar mix. I just wanted to make that point because it often feels like in those early days that there's this own, like this one path ahead of you. And I suppose you, to be fair, you did have a previous experience. So you were largely aware of in-house life, but that's not always the case at all and then as we're in the profession in the industry developing those relationships and understanding what it is that we do and the the boundaries of it are so much broader than we probably ever thought you know the the world opens up and it's it can be quite liberating i think as well for a lot of junior lawyers to understand that, that there are plenty of different ways for this career to
0: yeah i would have loved to have known a bit more while i was at uni when i when i was at uni it just felt like the only option was to do clerkships and get a grad position mm. and only in the big firms like we they would not even talk about the different types of law it was, it was only ever spoken about commercial law oh, yeah and i can remember so i applied for seasonal clerkships which would have what would have been my penultimate year and i didn't get any and then that's when the cabridge Schweppes paralegal program came up and then, when I applied the year after, I think probably because I'd had that experience, I then did get clerkship positions. But I can remember that first year when I didn't get any, I was devastated. I just thought this was the end.
1: Mm, totally. Um,
0: and no one really told you that there were actually many other options. You look at what people have done with a law degree, and it's I mean, the possibilities are endless, really. But back then, it certainly did feel like it was the only choice. Now, looking back, I, I think I probably would have approached, approached it quite differently.
1: You know, there's still definitely a part of the law student community, a big part that still still believe that. And it, it's quite shocking to me, actually, how often they still just generally are not aware of in-house practice. One,
0: I mean, one thing I found back then as well was there wasn't really the opportunity for juniors to go into to in-house straight away. Mm. Um, everyone I spoke to said, you sort of, you need enough experience to be able to go. You know, you need to do that private practice to start with so that you can go in-house. And so I, that's, that's what I did. I went private practice until I had what I considered to be enough experience to go in-house. I mean, I think in truth, a big part of that was the confidence in my abilities to go in-house not necessarily what other people would look at as to be enough experience private practice is so structured in terms of a- approvals before work goes out and i'd done so comments before and it while i was still in private practice and it was, it's a really big leap to go from that that structure to all of a sudden backing yourself and the work
1: that you're producing and knowing what you know now, do you think that that's still true—that you do need to have private practice experience before in-house? I know this is a this is a tough question, and I'm putting you a bit on the spot, but it, it comes up often. And I don't have a perfect answer because I think that the rules have changed, and you know, there's still not one size fits all. But there is also still some general counsels that probably still hire by that older model. What what are your thoughts on that?
0: I think it really depends on the. The in-house team hmm. so where I am now I'm sole in-house counsel I think you need to have a bit of experience to do something like that because you you need as a junior you need to be allowed to learn from somebody and if you're the only person in that team that is difficult yeah. but if you had the right team, I think being a junior in-house would be an amazing experience and I think that there, there are companies now and legal teams that do support that model yeah and it's certainly becoming more pop, you know, more known. And I know there are quite a few programs as well encouraging law students to look at going in-house. We hosted a, a law student for six weeks recently, almost like a seasonal clerkship that you would do in private practice, but so they came in-house instead. And that was great for us, but I think it was also great for him to see yeah. what working, like, the paralegal program at Cadbury Schweppes was such an influence over me. That's what I'm, I'd love to be able to continue that process. The 12-month side of it is quite a lot. It's obviously a very big commitment from the legal team. But to do those shorter-term ones, I mean, we we also got huge benefit from it while he was with us as
1: yeah, well. Yeah, for sure. So. You've kind of answered this question, but I would love to know what was the catalyst for for your transition from private practice to in-house when the time finally came?
0: So I always knew I wanted to go in-house. And like I said, I wanted to make sure I had sort of the experience and also the confidence in my abilities. But what prompted the move in the end was actually the commute (laughs) at the time that I did it. So I, I wasn't unhappy where I was, so I knew I would only move for the right job. I'd not even really particularly been looking. I'd only been back... Um, from my second lot of maternity leave for a few months and I was approached about a job that was only 10 minutes from my house. Oh, wow. Now, I I live in the very southeastern suburbs of Melbourne and so to get to the city by public transport was between an hour and an hour and a half each way depending on delays and things like that. Um, So with two young kids, it was a very long day and so it was—it was purely the location yeah, of that wow. job that kind of prompted me to to move. In the end, I mean, saying that had that not job had that job not come up, then I think I probably would have started looking sure. fairly soon because I was at the point where I thought, no, it is time to go in house. But that one was—it's really in its yes. timing.
1: I'm just assuming here, but is that your current employer?
0: No, it actually isn't. So uh, that was a, a TAFE called Chisholm Institute, and it was a really great experience. I was there not quite two years when this job sort of, again, fell into my lap a little bit. So I work at a company called Who Gives a Crap? Essentially, we're a toilet paper company. We do sell other household essentials like paper towel and tissues. As a company, we're very passionate about sustainability. So all of our products are either 100% recycled or they're made from bamboo. We launched in 2012, when our founders realised how many people in the world don't have access to a toilet. And in 2017, we entered the US and UK markets. And oh, wow. earlier this year, we launched an EU store as well.
1: I had no idea that you were operating outside of Australia. That's amazing. Yeah. So
0: we are mainly direct to consumer business, but we also have a B2B arm and we're a profit for purpose company or otherwise known as a social enterprise. So we donate 50% of our profits to help build toilets in the developing world.
1: That must feel really good to be a part of something like that.
0: Yeah, it does and it's amazing. We donate the profits to charities that specialize in this area and seeing the impacts that can be made, It's pretty amazing. Wow. I think toilets are something that most people don't talk about, things that most people don't think about. But if you actually stop and think about what life would be like if you didn't have access to a toilet, it's not a particularly nice thought. And so it it is actually life-changing for, you know, and not just in terms of health but also flow-on effects for people if they do have access to a toilet.
1: Yeah, just that basic need being met. It's something that we take for granted and in fact something that many of us actually started to understand what it could be like when we had the you know, severe toilet paper shortage of March twenty twenty. <laughs> and and that's I know when it's not a toilet specific, but most certainly that feeling of scarcity was something that I, I felt and I think many of us did because we were panic buying the toilet paper and including your product as well I went to buy some and I couldn't you were sold out as quick as anybody I'd love yes. for you to tell me about that experience in that time
0: yeah whoever thought toilet paper would become 2020's product of the year <laughs> we certainly didn't it was a surreal experience we were looking at it back in March as you know supermarkets were selling out of Toilet paper, and we were joking, like saying, "Oh, next thing we'll be selling out," and and next thing we sold out. So we we had to close our store mainly because the orders were going out so quickly. We had no idea what our stock levels were like, so we shut our store down, marked as sold out, made sure that we could still honor any subscriptions mm-hmm. that we had, and and then it was. I mean, you think if you have no product, you get quieter, but we just got busier. Also, when we got stock back, making sure that it was distributed in the right way. Because if we just opened our, I mean, we had over half a million people on our wait list, oh, which it. is just, I mean, it's ridiculous when you look at it, <laughs> when you think about it now, but if we had just opened our store up again, we'd have sold out again in you know, minutes. So we emailed people on our wait list and we, we it took about three weeks, I think, to get through the wait list. But thankfully, since then, we've been able to stay on top of
1: it. Look, it's a good problem to have.
0: Yes, it is. We made the biggest donation we've ever made this year. In June, we made a donation of $5.85 million. Oh,
1: that's a Um, a sensational amount. Well done. I
0: mean, we are a a very high-growth company. The first donation they made was $2,500, and that really wasn't that long ago. But, yeah, this that number just oh it's just amazing to think that we're a part of that and the the impact that that actually can make
1: as much as that was happening everybody was probably transitioning to working from home and working remotely as well so that's a huge test of your leadership team
0: we were quite fortunate in that sense in that because we were already a remote business a lot of us worked from home already so we had all of those systems in place Our Melbourne hub is in Collingwood. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's sort of over an hour and a half away again. And so even when we were all in the office, I would only go in one day a week and I did the rest from home. We have people in the US. So we've got a hub in LA, but we also have people in New York. We've got people in Manila. We've got people in China and we have one guy in Ireland. (laughs) So we were already quite used to that. One positive thing that's come from it is we've increased, I think, the social hangs, which you get when you're in an office with people. For those that aren't part of a hub, they didn't get to sort of participate in that as much. Yeah. And so I think having everyone at home, it's really highlighted some of the things that people who weren't hub based were missing out on. And so we've tried to encourage that sort of company wide, just catch up type thing you know where we'll have the first 10 minutes to meet of a meeting won't have an agenda where you just can have a chat and see how people are going and i think that's something that we'll definitely continue even once the hubs do reopen
1: there's certainly more empathy isn't there for the remote workers in our teams i'd say i've experienced the same myself
0: yeah and it's i mean we're a, a very flexible and sort of understanding company anyway but we've had some hilarious zoom bombs from children
1: it's democratized meetings hasn't it when there's kids and dogs and cats and the doorbells ringing yeah there's no head of the table anymore everyone is in their their own little box which is a yeah an incredible shift in the way that we all we all meet it's been fascinating kate you mentioned it earlier you said that it is a profit for purpose company and I'd really love to just hone in on that and get you to explain profit for purpose and if that differs from not for profit.
0: So it does and I think the biggest difference is that we are a for-profit company but we use those profits for a purpose.
1: That makes perfect sense.
0: And our, our purpose is that we want everyone in the world to have access to a toilet. We do that by donating 50% of our profits to charities that are experts in this field. We might be toilet paper nerds, but we're not toilet nerds. (laughs) We, you know, we're not the ones that know the best way to approach things in different areas. And so that's why we work with charities that are experts. It's a a very different way to work as well, because everything we do, every decision we make, we weigh it up against is this helping us with our ultimate mission.
1: Well, there's a guiding North Star there for everyone in the team. It's an incredible mission and you've, you've got that vision really clear there. You said that you're the only lawyer in the company? Yes,
0: yes and I'm the first person that's ever done this role as well. So sort of starting, starting it from scratch.
1: What is it like to be a sole legal counsel, hyper-growth company and yeah, Greenfields, as you said. And so being able to start from scratch, what is that experience like?
0: It's amazing. I mean, I, I absolutely love my job, but it is busy. It's definitely very, very varied. I think because of that, I don't have a typical day. You know, and every day can look completely different. And that's part of why I love it. As a startup, they're were no real processes in place so some of it has been trying to introduce things that work but that work for us we're not just going to introduce things for the sake of it we've got to make sure that it works with how we work i had sort of planned on coming in and sort of doing a bit of an assessment of where we're at and what we needed and then i just started to feel like i'd got a handle of where we're at and then covid hit and it's sort of been a well quite frankly, it's been the most ridiculous year ever. <laughs> and so it's it's sort of been a challenge to try and keep that progressing. And we, I mean, we are, we are progressing with it, but it's probably taking a little bit longer than I would have initially expected when I first started.
1: Yeah, of course. We, no one could have predicted the year that was to come. Your product in particular would have just been in such high demand through, through this year. So you've got to certainly give yourself permission to just pull back a little and reassess so well done on on kind of making it through
0: who gives a crap is amazing in terms of supporting their employees they say that their employees are the number one priority and they actually mean it but one thing we found is you've got a group of incredibly passionate people and all of a sudden the separation between work and home were becoming blurred And so people were very busy and people were working ridiculous hours and trying to get people to slow down and take a break was becoming really difficult. Mm. And they they had done things like offering limited personal leave to anyone who needed it. So you could, you know, change your slack status to parent duty or just taking time away for, for myself and it was completely fine, but people weren't using it. Um, nice. and we were trying to work out a way to give everyone a break they needed. And so they introduced a two week, no slow fortnight, which meant everybody in the company had a week's leave. So they did it so that we didn't completely shut down. And this happened at the start of September, 50% of the company took the first week off and 50% of the company took the second week off. And in that alternate week, so the week that you were on, it was a slow week. And so there were no meetings. The idea was that you could take a step back, have a look, see where our priorities were, what needed to be done. And it was amazing. So I closed my computer and I didn't open it again for a week.
1: Good on you. And had some time to reflect.
0: Yeah. And I think the overwhelming reporting back said, Wow, I didn't realise how much I needed that. And I think everyone, I certainly found the same. I wouldn't have said that I needed a break, but after having it, I was like, Oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> so that was that was really great. And then with the slow week, um, just trying to get through and work on some projects that had sort of been lingering for a little while because, you know, other things had become higher priorities.
1: Yep. When you look at say a typical week, what are the the subject matters the areas of law that you're mostly looking at
0: well it varies so greatly i think a lot of it is about our growth trajectory as we get bigger we've obviously got more eyes on us we also have eyes in different locations Mm -hmm. and so you've got to make sure you're complying with everything working with our ip partner on new trademarks or even a review of our existing ones quite a few ndas for look you know looking forward to working with different people, a lot of employment contracts recently. We've, gr- We have grown dramatically. I think. I mean, I've only been there twelve months, and I was employee number fifty six, and I think we're now over a hundred. There's also some quite specific things that we do liaise with external counsel on, that are sort of jurisdiction specific. So I've been working with a U.S. lawyer on some regulatory requirements around fundraising privacy is also a really big thing obviously our customers are really important to us we want to make sure that we protect them in the best way and so we do lots of training on privacy and security and things like that training decks are fun at who gives a crap i get to use lots of gifs so they're always fun to do one thing that's really important for me to do is i constantly reevaluate what i've got on and i try and respond to the quick wins quickly but if i didn't constantly reprioritize i think i'd get overwhelmed so it's trying to make sure you stay on top of things
1: and when everything's changing within an hour within 24 (laughs) hours the cycles are so much shorter aren't they then we're in private practice and you may have a little bit more space or, or maybe not depending but it sounds like your your experience is that you know, hypergrowth, it's just go, go, go. And you have to, yeah, constantly reprioritize.
0: Yeah, and I mean, in private practice, I used to set up my week. Yeah. Whereas now I, I sort of at the end of each day, I kind of do a little plan for the next day. But because we're global, by the time I log on in the morning, mm-hmm. often things can completely have changed overnight.
1: Oh, gosh. Kate, I'd love to know what are some great resources that have helped you throughout your career?
0: I think people are probably the most useful resource this has been more formally via mentors but also informally just chatting with peers and friends and then I'm gonna say something that I considered a dirty word for a really long time but networking (laughs) so networking is something that absolutely used to terrify me especially as a new lawyer because I didn't want to look silly and I think that's something that holds a lot of people back particularly as juniors But now I approach networking very differently. I look at it as I wanna learn something from everyone I meet. So it's more about asking questions than wondering what people think about what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, that reframe takes the pressure off when you're in the situation. If you're just there to learn and inquire, you don't have to feel the pressure of delivering all of the conversation, but also people love to speak about themselves. So, you you know, you're doing them a favor as well. They get to teach and talk and, and share their insights. So that's win-win.
0: Yeah. And also not just talking to other lawyers, but people from different industries. I've got a few friends that work in business development and they are massive resources because they look at things differently.
1: And we can learn something from everyone that we meet. I'm a huge believer in that and outside of legal as well, if not more so, because like you say, they're outside of our paradigm and they can shift the thinking and question, like, why do you do that? (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I guess I'd love to just ask on the formal mentoring side, did you do the mentoring program with the Association of Corporate Counsel? Yes, I did. Yeah, same. I did mine last year, early last year.
0: Uh, yes, so did I. Ah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that was really good. I mean, I, that was during the period of where I changed jobs as well. So just having someone to talk to that had kind of done it all before is so useful. And to get the perspective of someone who has been through it and done it and got through the other side.
1: And speaking of mentors and I suppose people that have given you pearls of wisdom, What is one of the best pieces of career advice that you've ever been given?
0: Oh, I've got some examples of pretty terrible career advice, but I I think actually useful skill is being being able to determine what is useful and what isn't. But in terms of the best advice, something I heard quite recently, and it made me think about how I approach my career a little differently. So I'd always said, and sort of my motto, I suppose, was It's really important to keep your eyes open for opportunities but somebody recently challenged me on that and said we shouldn't just keep our eyes open for opportunities we should make those opportunities and when i thought about it i think i'd been doing that to an extent but it really clarified the way i think about it i think it also helps when you're very passionate about what you do the social enterprise side of it is something that I think is so worthwhile and it really can have such a positive impact. And it's not something that's, I mean, it's becoming increasingly more known, but it's not something that is almost everyday knowledge. So the more people that hear about it, I think the better better it will be. We're seeing more and more consumers these days caring about the products they're buying and the values of the companies that they support. Mm -hmm. We're also seeing this message spread that this profit for purpose model is a viable one. Yep. And I think ultimately that's only going to have a positive impact on the world, you know, the more that spreads.
1: I, I can see the energy and the passion that you do have for your work. And that's not always available to everyone in, in the legal space because we're maybe not as aligned to a brand or a company with a mission or a vision that, really speaks to us and you're there and you're living that and I, I really commend you for investing your career in that way and also highlighting to the rest of us that this is a this is a thing and that this is a growing business sector no doubt and that if you do have a particular passion you can find a way to merge that with your legal skills and actually you know bring that to the table and and use that as a way to help the company achieve its goals.
0: Yes it is a Pretty amazing thing to be a part
1: of. We've got the Association of Corporate Council Awards coming up. I wonder, when is that? What day is that happening? That's on the 18th of November. Oh, brilliant. Well, this episode's due to drop in a couple of weeks, so it'll be out before then. So we may may not know the the end result yet, but just Mm. to be a finalist is an incredible achievement. I know the calibre of the the people that judge and also apply and then i also know the process you have to go through from here so good luck because i it's pretty intense from what i hear so we'll see what happens but all the best for that and the kids going back to school melbourne coming out of you know super intense time and on to 2021 yes (laughs) thanks kate thanks for being here thanks very much my pleasure mel Thank you for listening to this episode of Counsel. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn or Instagram. Find me at The In-House Lawyer.